on four things. And I'm going to look at Mark 15. So if you've got your Bibles, what I'm going to be speaking on is from Mark 15. I'm going to look at the crowd, the crucifixion, the curtain, and the covenant. Now, the crowd and the crucifixion are, are, are quite long points, but the last two are quite quick. So don't think after the first two, oh, you the last two are not as long as those two, because they're not, right? The, the last two are quite quick. I'm just going to read a, a section of Mark 15, but I will be looking at different verses all the way through it. Mark 15, verses 11 to 14, 15. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Last week, if you were here, um, on Palm Friday, if you remember, I talked a little bit about the crowd. The crowd as they come into Jerusalem, Jesus riding on that donkey. And the crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. It was the old ancient cry of the Hebrews for their Messiah. But half the crowd was shouting, who is this? And I said last week, you have to pick a side. Are you on the side that says, who is this? Who is Jesus? Or are you on the side that says, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is my Savior. And here we see a crowd again gathering just under a week later. And the ironic thing is that this crowd that is shouting, crucify him, are probably many of the crowd that were there shouting, Hosanna. Because that's how fickle we are. People follow a crowd. And the crowd in Mark 15 is mentioned many times. People like, don't like to go against the crowd. We're not necessarily like salmons going against the flow. People like to go with the flow. And it's the same here. You see, they all started shouting, crucify him. And many of those who were shouting, Hosanna, last week are now shouting, crucify him. Why? Because the crowd shouted, crucify him. Did you see in verse 11 where it says, those who were opposed to Christ stirred up the crowd. They stirred it up with lies and deceit, speaking and whispering into people's ears. I wonder what they were saying. Isn't that what happens today? The enemy of our soul, he's a, he's a liar. He's a deceiver. And he whispers into people's ears lies and deceit. And he stirs up a crowd to come against Christ. Just like today, people are, are more concerned about appearing good and looking good and being part of the crowd than they are to go against the crowd. Today, we accept all sorts of sin to appear right in the eyes of the watching world. Yet this crowd 
were doing the same thing. But in their doing so, they rejected Christ. And we've got to be careful in society today that we don't just go along with the crowd. Because if the crowd starts shouting, crucify him, we may just be caught up with them. Not only do people want to ignore Christ, they didn't just want to ignore Christ, this crowd. They wanted to destroy him. And that's just like today. Not only do people want to ignore Christ, they want to destroy him. They want to destroy his teaching. They want to destroy his legacy. They want to destroy his instructions to us. It's not just a matter of following the crowd anymore. It's a total rejection and destruction of Christ himself. And that's going on in our society, just as it was then, because it's the same lie. The same lie. And you saw, as I read, that this voice in the crowd started to get louder and louder. It said that they cried out in a loud voice. You know, I love that song we sang right in the beginning. Sing a little louder. You know, it's up to us, the church, the redeemed, the followers of Christ, to speak up a little louder. Because for sure the crowd is speaking up loud. The crowd is shouting out loud. And today, if you fundamentally believe the written word of God and follow the teachings of Christ, there's a loud voice that shouts against you. There's a loud voice that shouts you down. And I'm sure that this loud voice that was shouting in the crowd, crucify him, they were, they were in the minority. And you see today in today's society how the minority shout very loud. The voice of Antichrist shouts louder and louder even today as it did then. And this is why it's up to us as the church, as the voice of Christ, to speak up louder in your neighborhoods, in your families, in your schools, in your colleges, in your workplaces. It's very difficult today, even in your workplace, to speak up about Christ because there is a voice of antichrist. You see, in verse 15, Pilate, who was, who was in authority there, he wanted to pacify. He wanted to appease the crowd. So he sent Jesus to be crucified. Even today, those in authority, our leaders, they want to appease the crowd with the loudest voice. And it's usually the minority. It's usually an anti-Christ voice. As I was reading through, of course, when you, you study stuff like this, you, you cross-reference and you look at other verses of Scripture. And I was taken to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 and verse 25. Can I use your box, Sam? Little table. That's good. Oh, and this, this sent a chill 
through my body when I read this. This crowd that was shouting, they said, yeah, crucify him. And may his blood be on our hands and on our children's hands. They didn't know what they were saying. They were talking about the blood of Christ. Obviously, symbolically, we want it on our hands. We don't care. And we don't care if it's on our children's hands. But this is the blood that could have cleansed them from their sin. This is the blood of Christ they were talking about. But they weren't talking about it in a positive way for salvation. They were absolutely blaspheming and calling curses down on themselves. And using the blood of Christ to do it. I thought, wow. I wonder what the consequences of that was. Because we don't know from Scripture. But we do know from history. Because less than 40 years after they cried this out, less than 40 years, the Romans invaded Jerusalem. They razed that city to the ground. They crushed the temple. And I just want to read some of the account of what happened. Josephus, one of the Jewish historians of the time, a secular, he wasn't religious, but his, his accounts are regarded by most historians, all historians. And this is the account of what happened 40 years, a generation. Remember they said us and our children. That's a generation. And we're talking about a generation later, this happened. More than a million people died in the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans. Thousands died by famine. Thousands by disaster and thousands by the sword. That's what he wrote. This is what he said then. He said that their blood ran through the streets like water. So much so that it was extinguishing burning buildings. Thousands were crucified. Thousands upon thousands were crucified. Remember the same punishment that they had inflicted on the Messiah just less than 40 years earlier. And then he goes on to say, so many were being crucified that the Romans could not keep up with it. They had to stop. His words were, they were obliged to cease because they couldn't keep up with the crucifixions that they were doing. It was tiring them out. Why? I wonder if it was because the crowd shouted, crucify him. Let his blood be on our hands and on our children's hands. You see, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to reject him and mock him and blaspheme him. You may say, oh, well, preacher, you tried to frighten people into the kingdom. I don't care. If you come into the kingdom through fear or through love, whatever, as long as you're in the kingdom, you've got to be in the kingdom. I said last week, you've got to take a side. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no gray area. There's no one foot in and one foot out. You either know who you serve or you don't serve him. They didn't know what they were doing. 
They were calling curses down upon themselves. But in Luke 23 and verse 34, and we know it, Jesus called out, even from the cross, Father, forgive them. Because even, I believe even those people who had said those things, if they'd come and repented and confessed and repented genuinely, there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness for everyone. Pilate washed his hands of all responsibility. The people took responsibility on themselves. They totally rejected Jesus. And I believe that there is a huge rejection going on in the world today, not just in our society, but everywhere. This lie and this deceit, I spoke about it last week, is blinding the eyes of unbelievers, those who cannot see Christ. Their eyes are being blinded by lies and deceit. You see, if you just ignore Jesus Christ, if you just ignore His teachings, if you just ignore what He stood for, you don't just ignore Him, you actually reject Him. I've said it so many times, I'm not the greatest of gardeners, but I have a dabble. And if I ignore the garden, the same as you, if you ignore it, you don't have to plant weeds, do you? They just grow. You don't have to nurture them. You don't have to feed them. They just grow. If you just ignore your garden, it will become overrun with weeds and brambles. You lose control of it. Why? Simply by ignoring it. The Bible says, how will we escape if we neglect, if we ignore such a great salvation? We can't neglect Him. We can't ignore Him. Because by doing so, you reject Him. And by rejecting Him, you become no better than this crowd that were baying for His blood. The consequences of rejection catastrophic. So my message on this first point is don't be part of the crowd that shouts crucify him. Don't be part of the crowd who just less than a week earlier was shouting who on earth is this guy? Be part of the crowd that says this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior. Then there was the, the crucifixion the death of Jesus. You see that in Mark 15 from verse 33 onwards. You see, so much happened in those three hours while Jesus was on the cross from noon until three o'clock. And incidentally, I believe that those three hours, this is just my personal thing, I believe that those three hours are the center of eternity. Those three hours, something happened. There's a darkness that came over the earth at that time. And scholars and historians have mentioned this. Ancient writings, Roman archives, they archive and mention that at this moment in time, in history, a darkness came over the land. Some people have tried to explain it by saying, ah, there was a solar eclipse. 
Maybe there was. I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't believe we have to try to put natural explanations to everything miraculous. Sometimes it's just miraculous. Oh, yeah, but there was a, an eclipse that happened or something. And well, Yeah, it might be well done. But sometimes it's just miraculous. This remarkable darkness covered the earth. It was as if creation itself was in agony and mourning the death of the Creator. The Creator nailed to a tree that He had created on a hill that He had created by a people whom He created. And it's as if creation itself moaned and groaned and the darkness came across that land. God's wrath against sin was being poured out upon Christ. It was both horrible and triumphant at the same time. Because of the cross set before him, he endured it with joy, the Bible says. God's plan. This wasn't God's plan B. This was God's plan A. This wasn't a contingency. Oh, if everything else fails, um, I've, got, I've got Jesus to come. No, that's not what happened. You see, everything that went before was plan B. Everything that went before was the contingency, and Jesus Christ was the real thing. Everything else was a shadow of what was to come. All the sacrificing, the high priest going into the temple once a year to sacrifice for all the people. The weekly, daily, small sacrifice for, for sin. That was just a shadow. The temple, the holy place, it's just a shadow of what was to come. This is what was to come. Jesus. Jesus. Isaiah, we read it earlier, Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased him. Why? Because he knew what was happening right now. This day, over 2,000 years ago, it was salvation for all of mankind. The sinless one took on the guilt of the world, past, present, and future, all in one go. Some say, and I totally disagree with this, I hope you're not one of them, some say that at this moment, Jesus Christ became the biggest sinner of all time. I don't agree with that. Jesus Christ was not a sinner. He carried my sin on my behalf, for me. He carried your sin. He carried the sin of the world. You know, Paul chose these words very carefully when he wrote them in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To be sin, not to be a sinner. He carried our sin. He bore it, Peter said. He bore my sin. He carried my sin. Isaiah 53 says, it was laid upon him, not in him. 
It was not in him. It was on him. He carried it. He was not a sinner, even on the cross. But on the cross, the Father treated him as if he was a sinner by pouring out his wrath. And incidentally, when we read about the cup that Jesus said, could it pass from me in Gethsemane? He knew what that cup was. That was the cup of wrath. If you want to do a, a bit of a study, have a look about, have a read about the cup. It's mentioned in the Psalms. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. When God pours out his wrath, it's, it's symbolic as he pours out a cup. And I think the Psalms say that he pours every drop of his wrath out on those who come against him, who rebel against him. And that's why Jesus said when he passed the cup around, he said, drink every drop. Because that cup was the cup of salvation, not the cup of wrath. Jesus was not a sinner. The sin was not in him. It was on him. He carried it. Spurgeon said this. I like quoting from Spurgeon, you might realize. Christ was not guilty and could not be made guilty. But he was treated as if he were guilty because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. Wow. Who's guilty? You and me. The whole of mankind were guilty. And doesn't matter now that we are living 2,000 years after. And doesn't matter that people lived 2,000 years before. He stood in the place of all of mankind to carry the guilt. All we need to do now is to step into that river of forgiveness that's flowing from Calvary. And say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And that's it. Mean it. Believe it. Walk in it. Just before Jesus died on the cross, he called out in verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me or abandoned me? At this very moment in time, he felt the most distant from God than he'd ever felt. He felt this burden of sin. The burden of the sin of the whole of mankind weighing down on him. The weight of it. The ugliness of it. The condemnation of it. He felt the separation of it because sin separates. And he felt it. He realized what we are in. He realized that we are steeped in this ugliness of sin. The separation of it. And he realized how we felt forsaken by Almighty God because of sin, lonely and abandoned because of sin. Before Him, having to come with, with our sacrifices, that's how mankind had to make appeasement before God, before Him. And in verse 37, Jesus cried out in what? A loud voice. He cried out in a loud voice. What did He cry out? need to look into Luke and John to see what he cried out. Luke 23 and verse 46 tells us that he cried with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. John 19 and verse 30, the last part, 
Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What's finished? The whole will of Almighty God was now being completed on the cross. It's as if Jesus said these words when he said, it is finished. It's as if he said these words, I have satisfied the demands of God's justice. I have accomplished all that was written by the prophets. I am the fulfillment of the law. And now the way of the holy of holies is open. And relationship with God has been made possible through my blood. He was bringing it to an end. The old covenant. The demands of the law. The old covenant of Moses. The atonement once a year for the people, for sin, was now completed, fulfilled in Christ. He said these words in Matthew 5 and verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was the fulfillment of all that went before. Remember I said it was a shadow, it was a copy, it was leading up to plan A, Jesus Christ was plan A. He fulfilled everything that went before him. That word fulfill means to complete. Some would argue that it doesn't mean that, that it means he's just continuing the old covenant and that we are still under it. But that word means to complete, to fulfill. Romans 10 and verse 4. I'm going to read it from the Amplified. For Christ is the end of the law. It leads to Him and its purpose is fulfilled in Him. For granting righteousness to everyone who believes in Him as Savior. He came to finish the old covenant off, to render it obsolete, and to begin and to establish a new covenant. Jesus said that the relig religious leaders at that time, they were trying to point to eternal life. They were trying to do it through the various ways and methods and a lot of their traditions. But he said, you, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. He said, but the Scriptures point to me. This is what he said to them. He said, all the Scripture points to me. In other words, the only way we can get to God, the only way to eternal life is through Christ. The whole of eternity points to Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. All the prophets that went before us afterwards, we all either look forward or we look back. And we look back or we look forward to one point in eternal history, and that's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. Jesus had to die to fulfill God's righteous law. Because the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. From the beginning, man had sinned, turned against Almighty God. The only way to receive forgiveness was through the shedding of blood. This was the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. He gave up his life. He said these words in John 10, verse 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, 
and I have power to take it up. You see, he was outside of death. He is life. He contained himself into a mortal body. This is all about God wanting to be with us. And I've said it on other occasions. He came down to dwell with them in the Garden of Eden. Incidentally, I was talking with someone just the other day about this. How long were they in the Garden of Eden dwelling in the presence of Almighty God? We don't know. It doesn't say. Could have been hundreds of years. But it's all about dwelling. When they sinned and brought sin into mankind, what happens then is that he wants to dwell with us again. So he introduces the tabernacle. Wherever they went, the people went, they would set up the tabernacle so his presence could dwell within them, amongst them. And then after the tabernacle, it was the temple in one place in Jerusalem on the mountain, central, high up. Why? Because he wanted to dwell amongst his people. He wanted to come down and dwell amongst us. And then when the temple era was over, what happened? Who came? Jesus came. And he walked this earth in human body. Why? To dwell amongst us. On Sunday, we, we celebrate his resurrection and then his ascension later on. And now he dwells amongst us through his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit lives in us. Why? To dwell amongst us. It's all about relationship. The God of the universe, the Creator, Almighty, wants a relationship with you and me. How crazy is that? I stand in amazement and wonder and awe that this God could go through all of this just to have a relationship with me. Then there was the curtain. Last two short points, remember I said? The curtain. The curtain was in the temple. It was huge. And it separated the holy of holies from the holy place. There were different stages going up to the temple. As you got closer and as you got up higher, different people were allowed to get closer to get closer. I, I'm not going to go through all the different stages, but the final stages was the priests would be able to go up into the, the holy place. But then there was one place called the Holy of Holies behind the curtain that only the high priest could go once a year to bring the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice for all the people. He would have to go behind the curtain. He would have bells on the bottom of his garments and he would have a rope tied to him. And while they could hear the bells, he was still alive. The sacrifice had been accepted. If they didn't hear the bells, they just drag him out. That's how awesome the presence of God was. And the sacrifice had to be acceptable before him. But what happened while Jesus was on the cross? This curtain, which divided God and mankind was torn from top to bottom. This curtain was 60 feet long. It was 30 feet wide, so it was 60 foot high, 
30 feet wide. And according to a Jew, a Jewish tradition, it was more than four inches thick. Now, when it was maneuvered or had to be put into place in the beginning, it took 300 priests to handle it. It was so big, it was so heavy. No man could tear it. No one man could handle it. Again, symbolic of how man could not get to God on his own merit, with his own strength. And that's the important point. It wasn't man who tore the curtain. It was God. Because only God can do it. Only God can bring us into relationship and forgive us of our sin. We can't do it of ourselves. And now, there's no need of a priest to go once a year to make atonement for our sin. Because Jesus Christ has become our high priest, the Bible says. And he takes his own blood before God in the Holy of Holies, wherever that is right now. Because it was a shadow of the things that was. And now the real thing is here. Jesus Christ takes his blood before God. And that blood cries out for you and for me. Sacrifice. Then there's the covenant. Last point. Not, not a long one. The covenant. This is the new covenant. Not renewed. Not the old one, brushed down, tidied up, but new. There are some that would say, ah, it's the old covenant, but it's tweaked a little bit. It's not. It's brand new. It's new. Hebrews 8 and verse 7. Last couple of verses I'm going to read. Hebrews 8 and verse 7. For, the, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one or an attempt to institute another one, the new covenant. That's the Amplified. I like the Amplified. Then verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete, that means out of use and nulled and growing old, is ready to disappear. The Greek word that's being used here is kainos. And it means brand new. It means unprecedented, never happened before. It means unheard of, uncommon, fresh, recently made. So they're using a word, kainos, which is not the old covenant renewed. It's a new covenant. So don't let anyone argue with you, ah, yeah, but it's the same as the other covenant. It's not. Even if you go back into the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, he talks about the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. That word in the Hebrew means, it's, I'm going to try and say it, kaudash, it's Hebrew. Do you know what it means? New. Not renewed. Not freshened up. But brand new. God made a brand new agreement, a brand new covenant, a brand new promise with the whole of mankind. No more legalistic or religious law that we would have to follow. Well, there are some parts of the law that, that are still there. 
the moral parts of the law. Love your brother, love your neighbor. Love God. Don't lie, don't kill. Those are the moral parts of the law. But the religious and the legalistic and the civil law, it's all gone. We don't have to do that. We don't have to sacrifice. They're all gone. Why? Because it's a new covenant. God dwells in us in His Holy Spirit. Peter was right when he said in Acts 15 and verse 10 that the law was a yoke and neither our fathers nor we were able to bear it. We are now under something far more superior. Plan A. God's grace and His mercy and His love and His forgiveness. We are saved through faith. Not because we have to sacrifice and obey certain laws. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, through forgiveness. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. That's eternal life. Mercy is not getting something that we do deserve. That's eternal death. We have grace and mercy. And all this now, through Jesus Christ, all this now, through His sacrifice, our Lord and Savior. And I'm going to finish on this last verse. And then maybe we could sing that song. What was the first one we did? Raise a hallelujah. If we could do that one, that would be great. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. It's simple now. All we have to do is believe, accept, and follow him. Have we got a... Oh, here we go. Yeah. If you come up. As they prepare to sing this song, I just want to ask you, are you in that place where you can actually say, I know him? Or are you in the place of the crowd last week? Who is this? Who are you talking about? What are you, what are you on about? I don't know. I don't feel it. I don't see it. You can know Jesus today before you leave this place. I want to pray with you right now. So let's just bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you want Jesus Christ in your life, if you want this grace, you want this mercy, then you pray this prayer with me. This is not a magic prayer. This is just you declaring that I want Jesus Christ in my life. That means that you want to follow him. If you become a Christian, it means a follower of Christ. If you pray this prayer, I want to talk to you afterwards. i got something I want to give you. You can take it away and read. So this is the prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for your sacrifice for my sin. I repent of my sin right now. I come before you and give you my life. Please come into my heart. Come into my life. 
Help me to live a life which is pleasing for you. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Lord, my Savior. I give myself to you right now. You know, and if you prayed that prayer, I just want to talk with you. I want to give you something to go away with. If you prayed that prayer, can you just indicate to me with your hand, just give me a little